1: Behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff
3: from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben, you're you. We are joined, of course,
2: with our fantastic production team of super producers, Dylan Fagan and Noel Brown. This is the second part of of a two-part episode, so if you are just now tuning in, you probably want to pause for a second and check out the first part of this series.
0: We'll wait. (laughs) Well, that's not way too long, really. I mean, I I think that something could be done, you know, outside of us just waiting another hour for them to go listen to another episode, right? No,
2: we're going to sit here and wait for an hour. All right, let's do it.
0: I can't can't take it any longer. (laughs) Uh, th- Thanks to the magic of editing. Yeah, I, I just can't take it. We got to we got to <laughs> continue on with the story because uh, there's a lot more to tell. We've only made it through about 1920 with yes. this guy. Now, um, as we said, 1921 was kind of a breakthrough year for him in uh, in oval track racing, and mm-hmm. th- this is a big deal for for Harry Miller. And uh, one thing that I wanted to mention here that we uh, we missed in in episode one, and I, I didn't exactly know when it happened, but I went back and checked and found yeah. out that. Um, uh, you know a character involved in his life that uh, that we kind of glossed over early on was Ali Evanrood. and we said that their cross or their paths would cross right Well, they did but it was back in 1907 or earlier than 1907 so uh, much much earlier than you know we are right now um, this is a, this is kind of weird this is how history works i guess you know you mm-hmm. get a couple of different um, versions of what's going on one version says that these two guys worked together you know they were co-workers Another uh, version says that they were neighbors, and that's how they found, you know, mm-hmm. kind of found each other. Uh, truth be known, they were both in the Wisconsin area at the time, and uh, they both um, had an inter- interest in things mechanical. And I guess Ollie got wind of uh, of what um, what Harry Miller was up to with his, his engines, because he was putting, um, st- I guess he called a stationary engine, maybe engines into boats, really. Yes. But he was also working on... A and an early version, I guess, of a an outboard engine, so something that you know could be uh, moved from one vehicle to the next, mm. one boat to the next. And uh, Evinrude got wind of this and, and liked the idea. Uh, the problem was that the the Harry Miller version was a four cylinder outboard motor, and uh, and Evinrude thought, well, I can perfect that, and uh, he ended up taking two cylinders off of it and then patenting the two cylinder design, and that's where the Evinrude outboard motor uh, came from, all the way back in 1907, because these guys had, again, crossed paths. And, you know, that's, that's just one of those things, like these two two giants of, uh, at the time, giants of, um, can you call them giants of industry? I think at this point, they're really tall people of industry <laughs> at 1907. <laughs> How about entrepreneurs and businessmen? Like Up-incomers. Successful businessmen. Yes. But at that time, in 1907, neither one of them were really, you know, they hadn't really made it yet at that point yeah they hadn't uh exer- they hadn't
2: reached their full potential
0: no but if you fast forward you know 12 13 years to the point we are now with Harry Miller he had definitely made it um he uh again the 1920s was a huge decade for him and we just talked uh, at the end of the last episode about the uh, the patent that he had filed for um his TNT car Yes. That had that 183 cubic inch uh four cylinder engine and uh, had a lot of um well, striking design characteristics that, that others copied and emulated throughout the next couple of decades, really. And uh, I think we should mention this now. Um, you know, 1920 uh, w- was big for him with with uh, you know design and, and building the entire vehicle, right? Like the the whole package. That's a really and, great point. And uh, so so every single part of this car. Now, oh, you know what? Man, I'm just I'm I'm crazy with my notes here. I'm going all over the place because <laughs> I got so much. Every single part of this car, at this point, mm-hmm. every single part of a Miller was something that he created himself. He created in the machine shop that he owned and operated. So uh, he had gotten away from using production car parts in race cars, which up until that point had been the main uh, the main idea yeah, behind race practice. Yeah, it's very common that you'd sure you would perfect things. You know, you would change a few things here and there, but for the most part, you were using production car parts mm-hmm. in your race car. He completely changed that. He 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 built or almost every single part of the Miller car was was always made in his own plant, and... I mean, every part, you know, the, the, every single little part of that car, th- there was an engineering drawing behind it. So it right. was a blueprinted car completely throughout, um, early, early on. Again, ni- as far, as early as 1920. And it took a
2: long time to build these cars. Yeah, we're talking about 6,000 to 6,500 man hours to build a complete car. And of that number, between 700 and 1,000 hours went into just, Putting the finishing touch on
0: each machine, just can, beautifying. It. Can you believe that? 6,000 to 6,500 man hours to build one race car. Now, I, I kind of get it. You know, it's 1920. Um, I think they do it a lot faster now, even, and, but that's still a huge, huge number. Um, again, a thousand hours just kind of refining each machine. That's a, that's a lot of time refining those machines, but here's the level of detail that this guy would go to. Um, there's another note, again, going back in my notes, but, uh, there was a, 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 um, an article here, uh, rather a, uh, a paragraph here, early on that says that um, he he took so much time and consideration into building these cars that he, you know every bit of uh, metal work and machinery that went into these vehicles that it was completely beyond all practical consideration. Like he he didn't care what it how much time it took, he didn't care how much it cost to develop that part. Right. He wanted it perfect, and he said that or it was said that. Um, parts of these machines that would never ever see the eyes of the public, you know, like something that was hidden deep down inside these race cars, sure was um, was like crafted and formed and finished with with just like the most loving care you could imagine. Like it was just the the perfect part for the perfect place, mm-hmm. and and every single thing like that. He said, you know, no one would see this outside of the mechanics that tore these things down, but he took the time to to really craft his cars right down to this granular level, and. You know that idea, that dedication. You know that artistic. Uh, I don't know. as you call like a noble calling? Maybe uh, was something that a lot of other engineers and designers were attracted to, and they wanted to work for him. So he became, um, a. Uh, uh, I guess working in his shop became something that was uh, was sought after. You know, a lot of people wanted to work with him and wanted to uh, kind of learn his ways. Maybe you know, right, be- become yeah. apprentice to his master.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned that because that reminds me, uh, in in many ways of. The practice we talked about in previous episodes of uh, people at an auto plant or auto manufacturers themselves occasionally leaving easter eggs for oh. mechanics like just some, like initials or something
0: yeah i've heard of that or, or maybe stowing <laughs> something inside door panels that are you know are never to be seen again yeah yeah you yeah know, things that rattle or maybe you know some sometimes it's a joke sometimes yeah. it's a you know it's a it's a message like you said or sometimes it's an item they'll throw an item in there mm-hmm. uh kind of a funny item sometimes you know yeah uh,
2: it, it, it i don't think he was doing that but boy <laughs> oh. I was, it was it sounds like it would be it
0: would be uh be a cool thing well he he definitely wasn't doing that he was uh he was he was more just focused on the precision of the machine and and every single little part it' was almost like uh like a like a watchmaker or something you know like every right. part has to be exactly perfect otherwise it doesn't the overall thing doesn't work but there's an argument uh, yeah. to this too man well, what's the, that the argument
2: here uh, which I support by the way is that if you have if you want control a lot of this is about uh, control over the balancing act that is every race car. So the calculation of every race car, which he is incredibly aware of at this point, is that the vehicle has to have the maximum amount of strength and the minimum amount of weight.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is a battle that continues today in every, almost every racing venue right while, or racing pursuit
0: sure yeah and the way that he did this now this is, is this is even more impressive because uh the the time frame that we're talking about the um the formula at indianapolis let's say yeah. um and the for, by the formula i mean um you know they allow certain uh you know cubic inch displacements they sure. allow so, you know the the um well just like we hear about with modern f1 cars and any race series really you find that uh, there's a there's a formula involved and you can't exceed or um, you know, cheat that formula in any way, and you know, well, you can't cheat that formula. I mean, a lot of people bend the rules, as we've talked about with our some of our, um, ah, what do you call legends? I guess you know the, yeah. the automotive legends. You know, the oh, yeah. rule benders. But um, there's a formula for every race series, and you you have to adhere to that, so that you meet the class um, specifications. Right? Everybody kind of understands what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Uh, but his engines, even in this this incredibly just fast changing world of indianapolis even just that one race uh they were continually saying like okay now engines have to be 183 cubic inches okay now they're 191 now they're 213 you know they just kind of changed uh every year there was something different so he had to develop an all-new engine every single year yeah. and sometimes even more than that if he's going to race in other series or his racers were going to race in other series um but early on in the early 1920s his engines were the gold standard really for uh you know for everything uh that the racers wanted they wanted exactly what he was putting out so his his engines were the ones that were the the sought after commodity here right and I, I had mentioned early on in in last in the last episode then later i said i wanted to get to it as well um the thin design of the miller car because remember that blueprinted car that we talked about and uh, i think it was the end of the la- the first episode yes with all the the crazy design characteristics and the one the car body design that was going to be the standard for oval track racing for the next two decades really um it was this extremely thin design you don't, you don't get an appreciation for how thin these things were until you see one in person um and i'm talking about just the body now i know the chassis and the wheels had a wide stance like the wheelbase is wide yeah yeah the, yeah, the wheelbase is long and then the it had a, a a wide track i guess maybe you'd say yeah like a width was wide um but it, it, the way I saw it described one time, and I'll just read this here from it. It's from a different article. But it says, his cars were elegant as well as swift. As Preston Lerner wrote in a 2013 Automobile Magazine article about a, a convention of Miller cars in Milwaukee, the vehicle that won an Indy in 1926 is not a car at all. <laughs> it's a strange way to say it. It's a razor blade suspended on four tall, skinny wheels. <laughs> at its broadest point, the body is a mere 18 inches wide. Let that sink in for just a moment. At the very widest point, this race car body is eighteen inches wide. That's not very wide at all. Um and yet, even with its puny ninety one and a half cubic inch engine, the car has been clocked at one hundred and seventy one miles per hour. Impressive. Impressive. But, but think about it. I mean look at I'm looking at photos of uh, you know some of these old uh, you know mid twenties uh you know Miller specials i guess you know they they all have different names but this one the one i'm looking at here is the Miller 91 Boyle mm-hmm. valve special and it has that extremely narrow body design you know i'm probably i'm guessing that the uh, the driver's shoulders were wider than the body itself you know the the design of the cockpit allows that to happen yeah the extremely low door sills I, I you can't even have i guess you can't say door sills there's no doors right um but it seems like the 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 shoulders of the driver are going to be outside of the the parameters of the body itself, mm-hmm. uh, inside the wheel still, but, uh, but it's, it's just, it looks dangerous. It really does. <laughs> it, if it looks cool, it looks fast, and, uh, and that's the design standard that they maintained, uh, for oval track racing in America at least for, uh, for at least 20 years. Yeah. And let's also, let's also put in
2: this, this point, which is important. Just because Harry Miller was a prolific engineering genius, didn't mean that he would automatically dismiss other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the in the twenties, uh, when when everybody is losing their minds over these Miller engines, he's also incorporating. Other design ideas from the best uh the, uh, the like the best racing manufacturers, you yeah. know. So he's taking some stuff from Bugatti as well, you know. Sure. If Mercedes has something he likes, he's going, Oh. And that being Harry Miller, he's also he's going, Oh, and he's having the light bulb mm-hmm. moment and he thinks for a few minutes or a few days and then he goes, Oh, but also this other Tweak to it,
0: yeah. Here I'm going to make it with my own alloy, and I'm going mm-hmm. to uh, make it uh, lighter and better in some way. Mm. Uh, so yeah, he's always refining and developing new things. And Ben, here's something that just kind of you know puts an exclamation point at the end of this whole thing for the huh. you know the 1920s really. And and we'll still talk about the 20s, but but just to give you a, a sense of how you know dominating this this guy was in this in the series, um, Miller almost overwhelmingly reigned at Indianapolis through the entire 1920s. Miller's won five. Indianapolis 500s and never placed less than six cars in the top ten throughout the 1920s. So they were never not the most dominant player overall, yeah. and that made them the most sought after, right? So mm. the Miller name was really um, intertwining itself with oval track racing here in the United States, and it was uh, a it was a big deal at the time. I mean, this is <laughs> a this is a, you know it's a lot of fun. It's a uh it's a it's a growing sport. It's something that you know it's dangerous of course. You know there's a lot of danger involved in these early mm-hmm. um open wheel open cockpit, you know, no seatbelt days as you can imagine. So um it's it's an exciting sport and people want to be around it at this time. It's uh it's something that uh is uh it's, it's gripping the nation really maybe. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to say it really. It's it's becoming part of the part of the culture. Yeah, part of
2: the fabric of Americana, right? Yeah. Uh and this this reminds me. I think we can introduce another laundry list of some of Miller's records and inventions uh, leading up to something that I think is really cool. Uh, So we're still in, we'll go through like some of the early 20s stuff. How's that sound? Okay, let's do that. All right. So word is out around the globe, around the racing world, and everybody has their eye on Miller. In summer of 1922, he began the design of a new engine in a car for the 122 cubic inch class. Mm-hmm. This new engine's only slightly changed. Uh, they have a two-valve hemispheric head and a five-main bearing crankshaft. The bodies of the 183s have been, you know, as as we mentioned, very, very narrow and lightweight. Yeah.
0: Maximum but, width, again, 18 inches.
2: Mm-hmm. But the 122s seemed even more <laughs> narrow and lightweight. Uh Somehow. Somehow. Even though their, their maximum width was still 18 inches, uh, they're, they, they weighed slightly less, I believe was one of the primary differences. So, the 122 was the first, okay, here we go, it's another first. Uh, the 122 was the first pure racing car to be
0: series produced. Yeah. But not many of them were series produced, right? No, they're a very small number. Well, there were 15. Mm-hmm. But still, it's, again, it's another one of these firsts. Another one with, uh, with the caveat, I guess, you know, first, uh, first racing car to be series produced. And only 15, again, that's not a lot. Now, three of these cars were built for European Grand Prix use, and they're driven by, um, you know, European drivers, of course. Mm-hmm. And by 1923, 46% of the indie starting field were Millers. And by 1925, 73%. What? This guy's a player in Indy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I know it's not all about this one, this one race, this one series, but, um, this is where he's really making his mark in the world. He's, he's, you know, been elsewhere, and he's still, oh, by the way, he's still building, uh, boat engines, he's still right. building air, aircraft engines, mm-hmm. um, I mean, what's he going mean, to do? Sleep like and, a rube? And no, and some <laughs> of the bigger, and some of the, the you know, the winning, <laughs> yeah, sleep like a rube. Yeah, the, uh, uh, some of the winning, or the winningest, maybe if you want to say it, sure. uh, of the, uh, the boat pilots, I guess, you know, the, uh, the Unlimited series, you know, yeah. the Gar Underwoods, they're using, uh, Miller engines in their, in their, in their vehicles. So, um, his name is really getting out there in just about every form of racing that you can imagine at this point. Um, again, a lot of firsts. And again, we're into a point in, in history where this, uh, th- this formula keeps changing. And so, you know, he'll build like about, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 vehicles that, that conform to that formula. But then by the next year, it's completely different. So right. uh you know you gotta completely change gears and, and create something brand new out of that uh, that workshop that he's that he's got or that amazing factory, I should say, not a workshop. And um, he's continually setting records during yeah, this time too. Yeah, exactly. And so around uh I think it was around nineteen twenty-four, here's another first. Miller designed and produced the one twenty 120, the one twenty two, which is a front drive racing car in late nineteen twenty four. Mm-hmm. Now these were built using again, here's the formula, the the ninety-one cubic inch formula. Which was enacted in 1926, and this is interesting. This author, um, and I don't know if we've mentioned this in this uh, this episode or not, but we're getting this information from uh, the Miller Offenhauser Historical Society. This uh, this author says that if Harry Miller had done nothing more in the highly creative in his highly creative career than to give the world a front wheel drive car as a practical reality, right, that would have you know earned him a significant place in the in history. That alone that's a huge point okay so some people
2: may have uh noticed uh, may have felt a little slippery on the timeline there uh the 122 front drive does come out in late 1924 mm-hmm. and only two are built before the 91 seat, uh, cubic inch formula comes in 26. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And this is really important because I know for, for some folks, as we said, the timeline can be kind of tricky here. This is, this is your uh, <laughs> drill down trivia for the day, folks, friends and neighbors. The 122 front drive racing car made in late 1924, but... At like to Scott's point about how things had to change so suddenly, they only built two before the 91 cubic inch formula comes into play in 26. And it is so difficult to describe, to properly, uh, pay due diligence to the, the enormity, the, the bigness,
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess the, uh,
2: the the importance, the weight, the historical weight, the historical
0: of weight. Of, uh, of creating a front wheel drive car for for racing, especially because it worked. Yeah, it worked, <laughs> and and the thing is that without the drive line that going through the cockpit, and that was oh, was so dangerous for so many years. Yeah, uh, the driver was able to sit like nine inches lower. Uh, than the comparable re- rear drive car, so um, this this right away sets up a better center of gravity. You know, um, it's just a, it's just a far better setup, a far mm-hmm. superior setup. And then the Miller further reduced the height of the, you know the, the radiator, yeah. and the result was this real low rakish car because they were able to kind of build around a different understructure. You know, like whatever was uh, beneath the body was so dramatically different that they were able to make it even a, a just a better looking car. Yes, absolutely, a, a more slippery car. A more slippery
2: car—that's a good way to say it—and this hits Detroit like a nuclear bomb. Yeah, know? yeah. They—they they go crazy with uh, the speculation, the research. The holy cow! We never thought this could, you know, be a reality, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so the only, but, you know, at this point, only, only racing cars really were the ones at this point, you know, right. that that were able to make do with this. And, and other, you know, there were passenger cars like the, the L 29, I think, was one that said they, they demonstrated the best possibility of front-wheel drive. And there was a, a famous uh, Citroën also, the, the Traction Avant, um, of 1934 that proved, um, that's it, much later, I guess, but, uh, that proved that, you know, Uh, Front-wheel drive was definitely a a reality. It was a practicality, maybe. It was something that could be done um, on a regular road and still be, you know, um, I guess functional, right? It was something that would be more practical for everyday use. Yeah. Um, And and funny that, you know, that came from racing because you would think that, you know, they wouldn't be so concerned with – practicality on the race track. But, uh, right. but but it came about because uh you know it allowed him to drop the, the uh drop the driver down nine inches and and make it a more rakish design and more streamlined and and therefore faster through the air i mean it's a yeah. uh, it, it all makes sense really when you think about it that way
2: it all makes sense and we are going to pause for a word from our sponsor be warned when we return we'll be in the middle of the roaring
4: 20s
1: And if you put in the code Gabby2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase.
0: And we're back and we're right in the middle of the 1920s, as you said, Ben. And at this point, uh, this guy is a wealthy, wealthy man. I he's, mean, he's doing so well. He is. He's, uh, he's you know... Just a pile of money. He's uh, he's got uh, you know friendships of you know with with businessmen, sports figures, Hollywood stars. He's Ooh. he's hobnobbing with uh, you know the elite. Um, he has a ranch uh, as well. And I would guess that this guy, you know, it probably it probably made him a little bit uncomfortable. Really, I mean, I, knowing his character, you know, we've read about um, how he was kind of a shy guy. He didn't really talk to a lot of people outside of you know engineers and other people that were right. designers or race car. Well, unless drivers. they wanted to talk about racing and engines yeah i guess so and you know i would guess that sure businessmen would want to do that sports figures i mean did that does that include drivers of the day i would guess it would yeah hollywood stars maybe not so much but you know hollywood stars have a lot of money to throw around too and i bet a lot of them were into racing so maybe they had some things to talk about so that's uh that's maybe what's going on here but um i feel that maybe though he was kind of the shy guy at the party you know yeah i i I just i just feel that's probably the way it was but um Anyways, of course, the the formula has changed again for uh, 1926, and um, he's got a new engine, new race car. But the more things change, the more they stay the same, because every single
2: piece of the component, uh, except for proprietary parts that he cannot legally create himself, Mm -hmm. that's all that was stopping him was that it would be illegal to do so. All these were designed and built all over again just for the 91. Uh, This was built in uh, rear drive series production with uh, completion of nine cars, so not too many. And then 10 Miller 91 front drives were built, and they each had their own design so these were each in some way a variation on the theme
0: and just to give you an idea of what this cost so in 1926 if you Uh, and and the idea was and they said you know if you wanted to win you had to buy a miller that there's no way around it you have to have a miller car if you can afford it Uh, Yeah, if you can afford it now a factory rear drive car was something now this is rear drive around ten thousand dollars and that's in 1926 and if you uh you to draw that out to 2017 that's about hundred and forty thousand dollars
2: yeah and a front drive car would cost you 15 grand yeah 15 large in 1926 dollars, and that works out to
0: about $206,000 today. Yeah, yep, exactly right. So that was, uh, it was pretty expensive. And we're talking about a time frame between, what, 1926 and, and 1929, yeah. I think, right around there. And that's about the, the price range that you would pay. Uh, but just to give you an idea of how many people did want to win and did buy Millers, <laughs> um, you know, in, in that time frame that I mentioned, those three years, 26 to 29, between 71% and 80, 85% of the indie starting field were millers at this point so man it was a, it was a tough competition because everybody had these winning <laughs> these winning cars really mm-hmm. so it came down to, to driver skill right yeah. and tuning of course, driver skill tuning. There, there are a couple different factors there. Yeah, and then as a result of this, you know, the success on the track, uh, there were there were boat owners that approached Miller to produce, you know, racing engines for their sport boats, and mm-hmm. and of course he created marine versions of his 122 and 91 cubic inch car engines, and then uh, he had new designs that came out for the for these boats, so the 310 cubic inch straight eights and a 620 mm-hmm. cubic inch V16. Uh, that he created for for boat racing as well, and I think those are the ones that Garwood would use. I think those were the the giant engines that you would see in those Garwood yeah. uh, powerboats. Um, but but here's the thing, um, you know the the looks and the durability and the quality of of these Miller cars, they you know everything that led them to be so successful also led the, to their demise because um, you know the, the Miller chassis and, and body, I guess, was something that every race car kind of dreamed about. You know, they would think, like, well, if I could only get a Miller, I'd be up at the front of the field. And right. as we saw, a lot of the indie racers did that. Uh, but the problem was, later on, um, that uh, his cars were then taken um, – th- the ones that he had designed and built, they right. were eventually taken back to, you know, the the, uh, the smaller shops, and they were re-engineered and designed in a different way. So they were – you know, the their original identity, I guess, was lost. They right. weren't they weren't preserved as a Miller original, really. Right, because people would like the
2: design aesthetic. Will like the exterior so much that they would say, well, I want it to look like that, but I want to try a couple of other things, yeah. and so they would get into the guts of it. Yeah, and, and the, prob- the problem with that is it, it
0: dilutes the brand, right? Right. Because later, you know, you're going to buy a Miller car, and you buy one that somebody has kind of messed around with, has, uh, has changed or altered in some way, and you're not really getting the original. You're not getting uh, what you uh, had thought you were getting, maybe. Um, so, you know, th- it's, again, it's, it's, sometimes it's tough to, to – you don't mess with the original, maybe. Right, That's the tall order. Ask Coca Cola. <laughs> they, they know that. <laughs> all right, so oh, man. here's the thing. Okay, so we're up to the late 1920s, and uh, and, and there's a reason we stop here. Yeah, there, well, there's actually some good advice here.
2: Yes, okay, I and it, I agree with you, Scott. Uh, all right, so we're leading up to an unfortunate period in U.S. history, the crash of 1929, which usher's in one of the most difficult economic eras in in since the founding of this nation yeah right? but he ha- but apparently he had good people around him yes because harry miller's uh, associates Gave him some advice and told him to retire from his
0: business. Yeah, and this is just weeks before the crash in 1929. They, they saw it and the, they smelled it in the wind. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. I think a lot of people had, and they said, "You got to get out. You got to you got to pull out, or else you're going to be left with nothing." Yeah, and uh, and he did that. He did retire. And he retired with a, a – he also had a $60,000 retainer from Cord and the sale of his businesses for about $150,000, yeah. uh, which allowed him, this again, to continue to live this luxurious lifestyle.
2: Right. And if we do the calculation, uh, $150,000, not even counting the sixty grand retainer, $150,000 in 1929 has the same buying power as
0: $2.13 million. Not bad. So he could retire on that amount of money at that time. And that's exactly what he did. But the problem was – well, you know what the problem was. This guy has an active mind. He can't sleep. He, he can't he can't turn it off. He can't stop, you know, the ideas, the thoughts. So the problem is that he decides that in nineteen thirty he's going to set up a new engineering business, which is just awful timing. I mean he knows what's going on. He's yeah. setting up a new engineering
2: business. And hired the rest of the he was like, guys, let's get the band back together. And he that, hired the rest of
0: his old staff back. Well that's what he did, yeah. And it's crazy. And and but but the thing is it's not the world of the 1920s that he was thinking it was. It, it's totally changed. He, he didn't have the uh, the thought that uh, we're looking at something brand new here, so a, a new right. a new America. We've moved from the Gilded Age to the Age of Steinbeck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the problem was uh, the biggest problem with this was is that you know he he's building these high dollar racing machines, and there's no one to buy them. Yeah, no one can afford them. So. Big, big problem, and, uh, you know, he, he kind of, like, he he hangs on for a little while, a few years. Uh, but in 1933, uh, Harry Miller has to declare bankruptcy. Which is
2: a crying shame, because at the start of the same decade, a prominent race car owner says, you know, I'll try one of these Miller four-cylinder, 151 cubic inch marine engines in my race car. Yeah. And it's, it's bonkers, man. It's bananas. Yep. It's successful beyond anything anyone was expecting because they thought it would be great but they didn't think it would be this great uh the prototype established a new international speed record uh they asked miller to design a race car version and he developed an economy racing engine uh for for the hard times he said okay we'll try we'll try to do something that gets bang
0: and considers buck And Ben, we're we're skipping over the most important part of this car. Ah, yes. This is is another first. Mm -hmm. This is the first... Uh, worthwhile. <laughs> Again, there's the caveat. <laughs> the first worthwhile four-wheel drive racing car design. And that was his brainchild. It was his idea. Um, as they said, you know, his friends had said, you know, Harry Miller's a guy that would gamble his last dollar on the drawing board. And that's kind of what he did with this. I mean, we know the time frame we're in, right? Yeah. I mean, he knows what's happening. As we said, he knows this crash is going on, but he just doesn't understand the long-term effects and how long this is going to last. And, um, so he designs this, uh, this four wheel drive race car in late nineteen thirty one they said it was a gloomy fall you know nineteen of of nineteen thirty one when he decided this and his creditors were you know at the time they were kind of swarming around his business saying like you know right. eh, is this really the time to be investing all this money you know the, we, we're gonna uh call in some of these bills you're gonna have to pay us um but the car itself was, it was really remarkable. It was, it was extrapolated from the front wheel drives of the 1920s that he created. And the four wheel drives had the same De Dion drive system at both the front and the rear. And there was a new 300, 308 cubic inch twin cam V8 along with, you know, this complete new drive system. And there were two cars that were completed at a cost of more than $30,000 at the time. And these cars, unfortunately, were not totally successful. Now, both of these, uh, you know, the the problems, I guess, were due to bad luck and design flaws in Indy and just about everywhere else in the 1930s. Um, But they really didn't give it the opportunity to... Uh, display what they were capable of. Because again, these are works in progress, right? They right. could be refined. Uh, but in 1934, one of these cars was raced at the Grand Prix of Tripoli and then in the Avis Grand Prix. And that's the one in Berlin that we talked about where the, the, uh, the exploding motor yeah. almost caused the engine, engine parts or car parts really to take out Hitler, mm-hmm. who was in the viewing stands. Um, so uh, the other car, I think, eventually was just raced on, in hill climbs before it was finally retired. But, um, it, again, They just didn't have the right timing down. They just weren't in the right spot at the right time, I guess, maybe. Right.
2: And it was kind of – also, there was a rush to it, too, because I think they still needed to refine the design. But that's why a lot of historians believe that the four-wheel drive cars were the cars that really – Sealed the deal on bankruptcy.
0: Yeah, and then and and well, and, you know, with the bankruptcy, you know, something good came out of this. Really, something mm-hmm. really good came out of this. Now, a guy by the name of Fred Offenhauser, and uh, we've mentioned that you know this this information is coming from the Miller Offenhauser Historical Society. Yes, and uh, Fred Offenhauser plays big into this because uh, he was he was Miller's shop foreman and his chief machinist. Yeah, when it, when he was working, he was working for. Harry Miller at the pretty time. much
2: one of his closest friends
0: and when these assets were sold at auction uh this guy fred offenhauser picked up the entire engine design and continued to produce it and refine it as you as he you know as the decades progressed right. and this design is what became what they called the indomitable offy which is uh probably the most, most victorious racing engine of all time because this guy bought this engine design in 1933 and do you know that Offy engines or Offenhauser engines Mm -hmm. were run at Indianapolis through the 1970s. So let's just say 1980, um, all the way up until 1980. That's 50 years of Offenhauser engines at Indy. And that's based on you know, the Harry Miller designs that are going back another 10 years.
2: Yeah. And, uh, the, and of course, this would be the number one pick to inherit and continue this legacy. Offenhauser is probably, out of everyone else in the world, the person most qualified to understand what Miller was aiming for yep. and where it could go. Now, Scott, before we go into the next turn here. Oh, there's an interesting character in the next turn as well. Right. So scoot up to your edge of your seats, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.
1: And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase.
0: And we're back. And Ben, we just had kind of teased that there's an, a really interesting character coming oh, along man. after this, uh, this this break here. Oh, buddy. This is a big one, right? We've talked about this guy in the past. and. Um, I'm glad these two got together really. This is a this is an interesting story. And and more on this in another car car stuff podcast, but um Preston Tucker sought out Miller in the early 1930s. In fact, it was around 1935. So this is post bankruptcy yep. and pre Tucker uh, automobile company. Yes.
2: And uh Tucker says uh, Tucker essentially says, you know, Look, I'm a master salesman. I feel that a stock block engine and a modern independently sprung
0: chassis might have a chance to win here. <laughs> That's probably exactly what he sounded like when he <laughs> said it. I'm sure. <laughs> you could so, decide it. Yeah, but, but the idea. Well, in case, of course, Miller said, "You know what? I think you're right. I think we can yeah. make something to work here." And, and he and said, "I have the I have the connects." Yeah. Tucker said, "I have
2: I have the connections in Detroit." Uh, it's where we can get we can get in the room to pitch this and if
0: I can pitch it and you can build it, we know they'll buy it. And not only that, but Preston Tucker was an incredible salesman, right? I mean he had the, the gift of Gab. He could talk anybody into anything really. So um, and he did that. But he presented his idea to Edsel Ford. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, Edsel Ford said, you know, I'm, I'm all on board with this. I think that's something we should do. But the problem was that, uh, you know, they wanted these ready or Edsel Ford wanted these ready by the end of February in 1935. And this deal was struck for the construction of 10 cars, right? So no way they're going to get 10 cars done in that time frame. Oh, I have the calculation for you, too, if all right, you're
2: well, interested. Okay. What's that? Let's go by the numbers. Okay. All right. So let's go, let's go on the high end. 6,500 man hours to make one. Uh, one car. Okay, sure. That's the calculation we start with. Yeah. So 6,500, uh, hours would equal about 270 days. And 270 (laughs) days are on the high end, 270.8, uh, if you like, uh, that equals 8.9 months.
0: Okay. To, uh, so that's. They've got. One car. They've got less than three months. To create ten, 10 cars. Yeah. To create 10 race cars for Ford Motor Company. And to test them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And to test them. And there's just no chance, right? There, there's no way that they're going to get this done. But somehow, somehow they got these cars a- developed and built within, within that time frame. Now, just to give you a, a little bit of a, a background, I guess the, the $75,000 doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but that was $1.3 million in, right. in 2017 funds. So it was a significant amount of money. Um, again, you're talking about race cars, though, so maybe not that much money. Well, we're also talking about the Great Depression. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Okay, that's the other thing. Ford had the money to spend $1.3 million equivalent. In the middle of the nineteen thirties, when not a lot of other people did, I mean, no. individuals weren't coming to them with this type of idea. So, you know, they kind of had to take this deal when it when it came around. Uh, but the inevitable happened during the race. Now, the cars were rushed to be put together, of course, as we said, um, and of course, you know, there was the, the 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 situation at the shop was what they called one of unrelieved panic. Now, right. I can't imagine trying to build race cars for Ford Motor Company in a situation where you're in this unrelieved panic situation. Oh, my but gosh, yeah. Can you imagine? It was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, round the clock, you know, just all the way from the end of February until the race day, really. Only four cars qualified for the race, and all of those four cars retired early for the exact same reason. There was a seized steering gearbox that overheated because of its proximity proximity to the exhaust. So it's... yeah. Just a, a design flaw that they could have easily, uh, you know, remedied if they just were able to practice and, and experiment yeah, th- with it. A they little. had no time for testing at all, so they couldn't really put these things through the ringer and, and figure out what was wrong. But that's something that could have completely saved the reputation of. Harry Miller, mm-hmm. of course, Preston Tucker, along with him, right. and the Ford Motor Company, because Edsel had set up this deal. But here's the funny thing, and I find I find this funny because of, uh, the character involved. Oh yes, who but who should rear his
2: brilliant, absolutely insane head in our story? But the man
0: himself. Yep. Henry Ford. Uh, so Henry Ford, of course, you know the father of Edsel Ford loses his mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he lost his mind because, and you know, you think he would understand the situation. Like it was a rush situation, and you know, and, and look at it, you know, with a calculated, you know, uh, in a calculated manner, I guess. But he didn't. Um, he was he was embarrassed, right? Yeah. So Henry Ford himself ordered these ten cars hauled away. And just to be kind of like put out of sight for about a decade. hide them. Yeah, just hide these cars. We want these, uh, we want these put away. Now. <laughs> because it the, made
2: Ford look bad in racing.
0: Yeah, well the pro yeah, it, it, it dealt a serious blow to the Ford image and of course to Harry Miller's image. So he became kind of the fall, uh, this, uh, well, of course Harry Miller became the fall guy for, for what, um, Really shouldn't have ever happened. I a mean, scapegoat. Yeah, know? this guy had made some of the most beautiful racing cars of this decade and the most successful. And he was put in a bad situation, and uh, and it just didn't work out. I mean, it it made things worse, I guess, and it kind of. It kind of led the way for the way Harry's future would end up, I guess. Maybe that's a. It's kind of like a bad omen, really, Here of what's go. to come. Yeah. Um. So after this uh, this Miller Ford debacle, as they call it, uh, Miller formed a business venture with um a guy named. Uh, he was an automotive stylist. This guy. This guy's name is Tom Hibbard, mm-hmm. and his design or his idea was to build a trim speedster-based uh, Ford V8 chassis that was uh, that was shortened, and. Again, this would use the 91 cubic inch straight eight that they had uh, had engineered. It was a mid-engine design, and it was a, a fully independently sprung sports car. But nothing came out of this dream; it never really happens.
2: And after after that business venture goes up in smoke in 1937, uh, uh, Miller has a returning client, a person named Ira Vale who had uh, placed one of the initial engine uh, orders for a straight-eight engine. And this time, Vail says, I want to commission the design and construction of some new four-cylinder machines to compete against that old pre-World War I technology. Uh, And that's what was, uh, at the time, running the game on the dirt tracks in Indianapolis. So Miller designs a lightweight aero engine, deep chassis members, independent suspension, and here we go. Still
0: another first, disc <laughs> yep. brakes all the way in nineteen thirty-seven. Disc brakes, so uh, another another Miller first disc brakes on a race car, right? Yeah, I bet um, you
2: uh, bet you're mad now, listeners, when you think back <laughs> of all those times you had to mess around with
0: drum brakes. <laughs> That's right. And really, Ben, this car ended up becoming like a, a test bed showcase for a uh, for an oil and lubrication company because shortly after Miller started construction of those cars, the Gulf Oil Company approached him and said they want to buy out the project. So they decided that they were going to use these vehicles with uh, with current gas and lubricants and, and kind of show what their product could do on the track, really. And, um, and these race cars were completed, but, you know, testing and attempts at qualifying kind of showed that these things had uh, had cooling problems. So that was something, right. you know, that they, uh, they just decided that there was nothing they could do with them. They disposed of the cars, and they were just never raced again. Isn't that strange to think they just got rid of the project? Like it was yes. a special Harry Miller project. They decided, well, we're just going to scrap the whole thing. Well, they're a very large company, you know. <laughs> I guess uh, so. A program was launched immediately after
2: that, and people were looking to construct a Grand Prix worthy car using a team of uh, the best in the business. This would be a cost is no object kind of race car, so no worrying about economy for Mr. Miller. But at this point, he's aging, his health is flagging. And he said, I'm going to give it one more go. This was to be a 180 cubic inch, six cylinder, supercharged, four wheel drive, mid engine, independently sprung, disc braked, technical masterpiece, right? <laughs> it's impressive. It's uh, the engine was the world's first ever over square bore and stroke dimensions. Oversquare. Now yeah. that's
0: something I need to talk about because yeah. over square, when you describe something as over square, someone might scratch their head and say, what does that mean? It just means basically it's a, a short stroke engine. So the cylinder, uh, the cylinder bore is greater than, the diameter, I should say, is greater than the stroke length. So mm-hmm. it's a, again, a, uh, it's, it's more capable, I guess, of higher RPM. So that's the, the benefit here in racing. Higher RPM engine, short stroke engine. Yeah. This car has massive,
2: immense, Gigantic potential if it's given time in to be properly developed, which, of course, it is not. This very complicated car was rushed to completion and it failed to qualify for the 1938 Indy.
0: Yeah. And there were three cars, actually, that were compl- uh, completed for 1939 as well. And uh, one of these cars crashed and burned dramatically, as they say. Wow. Uh, one was withdrawn and the other one failed to complete the race at all. So, um, not very successful toward the end of the career. That's a, that's a real shame because this, this program had potential again. You know, with, uh, with, you know, cost no object. Uh, the best of the best, kind of a dream team situation, right. and it uh, just didn't work out. Maybe it's because Miller didn't have complete control. He wasn't the only one. That's you know? part of it, too, because,
2: you know, we get just like the idea of the explosion in Berlin, we have to wonder how history could have worked out differently because, you know, let's be honest. He's, he's a living legend, and if he just decided to not plunge wholeheartedly not go all in to building a car in what is an unrealistic time frame yeah. right then he probably could have just been a consultant go out on top
0: that's yeah. what you're saying right and, uh, this have, uh, this last one this one that we were just talking about there i should point out that that was also a gulf project and the uh, so the, the the gulf honeymoon i guess if you want to call it that uh, c- yeah. it kind of dissolved at this point so oh man it's just it's kind of like a, a, a uh, an abrupt downfall i guess to this guy's career really and it's sad to see um at one point uh here i mean we're getting really towards the end but you know his reputation has kind of has uh, dwindled a little bit which is sad because he had he was so uh, his cars his engines his uh his just instrumental yeah it, it was it was he was just such a dominant force in this in this uh, this arena for so long. Um, it's sad to see this happen, but and, and I, I never saw any notes on this really. But it seems like his marriage might have ended around the same time as well. And I'm not yeah. entirely sure, but here's the way it's described. And and you tell me what you think. Right. Um, so Harry moved by himself, and his wife returned to California. So he moved by himself back to Indianapolis, where he engaged in various aircraft projects involving Preston Tucker. Now all this ended badly and a year later uh Miller moved to Detroit. He set up a small business making text fi- text test fixtures and tools and he spent the last 2 years of his life um in just awful shape, just terrible condition. Yeah, impoverished. Yeah, exactly. And he he spent now of course it's a sad thing for a guy that had been on top at one point, right? I mean, yeah. he's just he's he's not he, He's not the character that he used to be. He's not the, he's not the same man that he used to be. He's, uh, he's dwindling here. And at age 65, which is relatively young still, that's not that old, having suffered, I think he he had suffered with diabetes, and, oh, this is the worst, he, he acquired something they called facial cancer. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's terrible. Um, but he knew the end was near, was near, and in 1943 he suffered a fatal heart attack and died on May 3rd, and his ashes were interred in Los Angeles with very little fanfare, and as they say, it was a sad passing for a flawed but vital man. Now what a just a, a precipitous fall for him, right? I mean he was on top. He was he was uh rubbing shoulders with uh with the elite, you know, the sports stars of the day, the um the the ultra wealthy businessmen and women and uh you know the uh uh the Hollywood elite. Mm-hmm. Um and now here it is just really it's not many years later, maybe fifteen years later. He's he's living this horrible life, uh, you know. with With he's got cancer, he's got diabetes, he's uh, his his heart is failing, um, his businesses are falling apart. He made these bad deals at the end of his career. Um, I, I would typically like to end on a, a happy note, but this isn't one. This isn't a good ending no, for this guy. Not particularly. No, it's a sad ending. Yes, Scott, you are right. Unfortunately, it's a
2: sad ending, but. There are numerous silver linings to this, and one thing uh, that's fascinating here is toward the the end, as things draw nigh and the curtain begins to close, I feel like there's an untold story in in this in this section because what happened between him and his wife and uh, the relationship of uh, of great minds like Tucker and Miller working on this stuff that they can't seem to get to click.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And they, you know, they worked together on and off until Miller passed away and they must have actually been friends because tucker helped miller's widow pay for the funeral costs
0: yeah and at that time now if if i'm remembering this correctly weren't they working on that combat car that tucker had yeah, decided that right. he wanted to build yes. it was kind of a, a pet project for tucker with a turret on the top and uh, it had some kind of you know crazy ability to shoot and drive at the same time which was something that was uh, something that i think the tanks of the day couldn't do right. I, I believe i think that was it i again i'm stretching the, and, the limits of my memory here and he
2: took uh miller t- some of the stuff, some of the designs from the Tucker combat car or concepts from it to American Bantam, and he got involved with the development of the first Jeep. And then also, uh, another another interesting tie-in here, it was while Miller and Tucker were working together that, uh, I think it was through them, that Tucker met the chief mechanic, John Eddie
0: who would later help him build the first prototype of the 48 tucker oh well, that's good then so so you know that uh, that relationship that uh, that partnership uh led them to you know meet uh, cross paths with even other characters that became uh you know important in his story later on as well you know preston tucker mm-hmm. uh so so uh, i guess it opened a lot of doors for a lot of people maybe that's the way to put it Absolutely. because look at his involvement with um you know just developing carburetors and then and then you know placing boat engines into you know these these small craft mm-hmm. uh, that you know Ollie Evenrude then saw and decided to patent this and you know it, he's he's got his hands in so many things you know his his legacy is one of um uh, great success i mean tremendous mm-hmm. success for decades and decades his, his name will always be tied with with racing especially american oval track racing uh but there's so many other uh, fields that that this reaches into, um, that, that that he's got he's played such a huge part. So even though you know we said that we kind of ended on a sad note, I guess with the, the man himself. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that happens. I mean, sometimes you know the the person themselves has a, a sad or, or tragic ending, but their legacy is one of uh, of, of tremendous accomplishment, of of great success. Sometimes uh,
2: the people who do the most for society end up being the least appreciated unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and sometimes even later on they're they're recognized for their, their achievements, you know. Yeah,
2: posthumously. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're a species who kill the guy for saying that the earth goes around the sun <laughs> yeah
0: i guess and you know the the lucky thing is that uh you know the lucky thing for for miller i guess is that you know there were times in his life when he was on top you know he, yeah. was, he was recognized well he was alive you know he was able to he's able to enjoy you know that that uh that life i guess that he had built for himself and his wife uh but it just didn't end so well for him at the very 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 end and at the risk of sounding corny
2: Is he really gone? Not if you're a race fan because so much of what, so much of what he did became inherent DNA in so many racing vehicles, uh, from the, uh, design to engine considerations. It's remarkable how profoundly one individual, a single person was able to affect this billion dollar industry, influence it, I, I would say in many ways set the course. And this, uh, this legacy lasts today. It's not going away. Uh, if you have friends who are big
0: racing fans
2: and they don't know about Harry Miller. Oh,
0: they know. They have to. They know, and they they probably know about the uh, the Miller Offenhauser uh, um, connection. You know the, yes. the the way that they're involved, and and I'm sure that they know most of the story. and They mo- know most of the firsts as well. Um, he's he's a big name. He's he's people that he's one. He's someone that people know. You know if you're if you're in the know in the racing world, you know about Harry Miller. And if
2: you'd like to check back on some of our previous episodes that we mentioned regarding racing or our Legends series that we alluded to, then do visit our website, carstuffshow.com, where you can check out every audio episode we've ever done. And, oh, brother, yeah, there are a lot.
0: There are a lot. They're there are a lot. lot. We're, we're getting towards well, – I think we've got to be getting close to 800 now.
2: No way. We have to be. Oh, man. Do we get anything? I don't think so. We don't get like a
0: car. No, no. Balloons don't fall from the ceiling or anything. Like <laughs> There's that. No uh, confetti. No, no. I think it just, here's what happens. I think I think the 800th episode happens, which you know that may be months from now. I don't know where we are exactly yeah. in, the, in the frame of things, but um, here's what usually happens. We talk about it for a while. We say we're going to do a special episode right. for the, for that you know that that milestone achievement. And then the, the thing passes, and we say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, remember two weeks ago when we did the episode on whatever this was, X, Y, and Z? Right, right. That was our 800th. That's yeah, how well. it works. It, it just happens. Well, we're not a show about counting, Scott. <laughs> we're a show about cars. It's not a, we're not <laughs> math geniuses, okay? Not so, a math doctor <laughs> no, or no. whatever. <laughs> not a yeah, numbers surgeon. It's, it's usually kind of like, you know, the muted trumpet moment, you know, like when, it, when it's, it's, it's over. <laughs> it's already, yeah, it's already happened.
2: Uh, so uh let's see i I think we can keep Dylan's name from the previous iteration or the earlier part of this series and we'll just stick with twin cam twin cam sure sure uh and unless you want to say forty eight that's good oh. we will talk about numbers yeah all right well if when you meet we meet our super producer Dylan just call him forty
0: eight. <laughs> I'll be confused. Maybe we can get him a jersey with the number forty-eight on it. Hey, there you go. Yeah. See, that's why you're the smart one here. No, oh, thanks. Well, you know, I'm not a math doctor, but I do play one on this podcast. Oh, oh, where's that trumpet? I know, I know. Oh. It's an old line, but uh, I think I kind of made it work. Yeah, for the I think situation. you made it your own. Yeah, you know? I know. I really innovated, did. just like Miller. Oh, I'm always. Th- I lay awake at night thinking of of closing clever lines like that. You know? <laughs> I was don't worry.
2: I was very inordinately proud of making up the phrase "math doctor," <laughs> <laughs> and
0: I used it freely.
2: I mean, you said uh, the other one was uh, what? What number, number surgeon? Yeah,
0: number surgeon. That's a
2: good one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Some. Well, I'm gonna think about it later. Uh, <laughs> if you have a if you have a favorite between those two, uh, rec- recommend it to us. We obviously would welcome any help. But don't say mathematician. That's not as fun. That's real. That's a real thing. I think it's real. Oh, my gosh. Is there a math doctor somewhere listening who's going <laughs> to write in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing, jackasses. Yeah, right. Sincerely, Alfred Nofowitz, comma, D-O-M. Uh, doctor of math. I guess so, yeah. So this concludes today's episode in this series, but not our show, uh, which brings me to an important point. We will be back next week. In the meantime, uh, if you are given to social media shenanigans, feel free to swing by our Facebook and Twitter page, where we are Car Stuff HSW. You can see all sorts of things that may or may not make it to the air, including stuff from listeners just like you. And. Speaking of you, you are the source of our best ideas and suggestions for upcoming shows. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop a line on the Twitter or Facebook. Or if you think that stuff is a bunch of tomfoolery and malarkey, we totally get it. You can write to us
0: directly. We are CarStuff at HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.